Well, this is week two of the series, Job, Walking with God in the Storm, where we've been looking at this pain and suffering in this world, and how do we deal with it? How do we handle it? Is there hope? And last week, we saw as we started through the story of Job, that Job is a man who was afflicted with this horrible disease of boils and sores on his skin, and he lost his family, and he lost everything. But in the midst of all of that, he still had hope. The circumstances might say to him that there is no hope, all is lost, but Job knew God, and he knew him intimately. And it was because of that knowledge, because he knew God's character, that he still had hope in the midst of the suffering. Today, we'll turn to Job again, and we'll see that in the midst of that suffering, that he cries out to God. And in doing so, we learn how we can endure and how during that pain, during that time of suffering, we too can cast our cares and concerns upon God because he desires for us to do that. As we turn to Job again, we'll turn to the end of chapter 2. Remember last week we talked about perspectives, and we saw Job's perspective. We have a reader's perspective. There's also God's perspective, and we saw Job's wife's perspective last week. Well, now this week we encounter Job's friends his three friends that have heard about what's happened in his life, have heard that Job has been suffering, and they've decided to come and sit with him. And they come and they experience Job in the midst of prayer. At the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 11, this is what we're told about these three men. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. His three friends had gotten word that their friend Job was in a terrible mess. And caring for him, they decided together that they three of them would go and help him. They said to sympathize with him and to comfort him. And when they see him, they're shocked because they don't recognize him. They were told later in Job that Job had been sitting there for months by himself in the midst of this. And it was after those months, how many we don't know, but Job said himself it was for months he sat there in futility, that they come. And after months of sitting in the ash, scraping the sores with broken pottery, he must have been a mess. And when they see him, they, they weep aloud, and they tear their robes, indicating to everybody just how much sorrow they feel for Job, their friend. And they put ash on their heads to tell everybody that they're mourning with him, the loss of everything he's had. And they sit down with him there in the ash heap for seven days and seven nights, and they don't say a word. They just sit with him. I think we could say they're his friends, they truly care for him. And they just sit in silence out of respect for him because they see the suffering that he's enduring. 
but things change. You know, Job's been sitting here for months, probably in silence. Can you imagine the thoughts going through his head? The things he was saying to himself about himself? The things he was thinking as people walked by? Can you imagine just all of that going on inside? And now his friends come and they sit and he's enduring the silence again. And you can sort of imagine all of that welling up with inside him. And now we see in the very next chapter that everything changes. Because it's like it just comes out. He can't keep it in any longer. And we see Job's words here. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. And he continues for the entirety of chapter 3, lamenting his suffering, lamenting all that he had lost, and wishing that he'd never been born. Job is crying out with honest words in the midst of his pain and his suffering. And he's crying out to God with all honesty, with raw emotion. He's not holding anything back. He's letting go months of agony, and he's casting it upon God because he knows God. This isn't uncommon. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it all throughout Job. We see it through the prophets. We see it in David. We see it in Moses. We see it in Abraham. They don't hold anything back. Think about it. What could you say that would surprise him? And so Job shows us that in the midst of pain, we can cry out to God, honestly. We can say anything to him. Because what can we say that he doesn't already know? We see Jesus do the same thing. The night that he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he's on his knees in the garden crying out to his heavenly Father, if it, your, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And we see that he cries tears of blood. He's anguished. And who does he turn to? His heavenly Father. And he shares with him exactly how he's feeling. Because he knows that there's nothing too small or too big that God doesn't care for. That's why Peter says this. He says, he says this, throw all your anxiety, every bit of it, the totality of it, all of your cares and concerns, regardless of how small it is, regardless of how big it is, God can handle it. Throw it on him. Why? Because he cares for you. As a father, as a parent, I say to my children, there's nothing that you can't share with me. I want them to come to me. I want them to come to me and share with me what hurts them. I don't want them to feel like they're alone. I want to comfort them. I want to remind them that they are loved. As an imperfect parent, 
I desire that for my children. How much more does our Heavenly Father desire to hear that from you? How much more in the midst of your pain does He want you to know that you are loved? And so you can come to Him with anything. We can tell Him anything because He cares for you, because He loves you. And He wants you to know that. He wants you to experience that. That's what we see in Job. Job understands there's nothing too small, there's nothing too big for God to handle. But we can't say that about his friends. Because we see rather quickly there's a limit to their patience. There's a limit to what they can stomach. You can almost see the three of them listening to Job cry out to God and sort of like twisting in their seats, very uncomfortable about what they're hearing him say. And you can almost picture them when Job finishes sort of looking at each other going, are you going to say something to him or should I say something to him? And Eliphaz steps up and says, oh no, I'll take care of this. And we see Eliphaz's words at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened the feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now, trouble comes on you, and you're discouraged? It strikes you, and you're dismayed? Should not your piety, your good works, your godliness be your confidence and your blameless ways be your hope? Remember, Job is the most respected man in all the land, the most righteous man in all the land, and they're saying, you of all people should know better than to speak these foolish things that we hear coming out of your mouth. What are you thinking? I mean, you've comforted others with wise words, and now here you've forgotten everything you've said? How could you, Job? How could you? How could you be so blind as to know why you're going through this? Eliphaz continues, and he says, Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. You're going through all of this because you've done something. You of all people should know that. God doesn't punish the innocent. He only punishes those who've done wrong. And you, with all your wisdom, have forgotten that. If you would but repent and admit before God that you have sinned, that you have brought this upon yourself, he will relent, and he will heal you. And that goes on for 29 chapters. And you can imagine Job's dismay, right? You can imagine just his shock and, his, and he's hurt. And so his first response, in the middle of the response, he says to him, so you've proved to be of no help. <laughs> you are miserable comforters, he says later. They proved that the kindest thing they could have done is just sit and say nothing. That was the kindest thing they did. But we also see something else. We see that they can't stay silent. They have to fix it. You know, and this is something I think women get better than men. 
Women can sit and listen and mourn and comfort just by presence, being present. Men, we have, to ha we have this need that we have to fix something. You know, Eliphaz says in the middle of this rant, you know, if I were you, this is what I would do. And I learned earlier on that doesn't work, especially in a marriage. Sometimes you just have to listen. That's the kindest thing you can do. Not only does Job have to endure the pain and suffering of losing his family and everything that he has and sitting there with these boils and suffering for months, he now has to listen to these three drone on about who's at fault. And he says to them, you see something dreadful here, something you can't fathom, something you can't understand, and it makes you afraid. It scares you because you don't understand it. It scares you because you have a wrong picture of suffering and who God is. See, his three friends have the same misunderstanding we see today and we've seen throughout history and will probably continue to exist until Jesus comes back. It's this understanding that it's karma. It's karma. You get what you deserve. There's this moral law that governs our world, and those who do bad can expect bad things to happen to them, and those that do good can expect good things to happen to them. And so when you see somebody suffering, it's probably something they've done. The way they've lived previously, what they've done earlier in their life, somehow it's retribution for that. That's karma. And sadly, it, is, it sneaks in and it finds its way in the churches, and into our own thoughts. As we suffer, we wonder, is there something I've done that's caused this? Is, is this God paying me back? Several years ago, I had a, a friend that I was talking with in the midst of his grief and his suffering. He just lost his infant daughter that, was, that died just shortly after she was born. And we were talking and he was crying and he was saying, I think I've caused this. I, I, I think God is punishing me. And I, I looked at him, I said, for what? He said, when I was younger, I had a girlfriend and she got pregnant and we decided to have an abortion. And I believe God's paying me back for that today. And I can't tell my wife, if I tell my wife, she's gonna blame me. And he's like, I feel like God's punishing me. And I'm just heartbroken because not only is he grieving the loss of his daughter, now he has to suffer under the weight of this lie that God is punishing him. And so I looked at him and I said, no, God is not punishing you. And quickly he looked back at me and he says, how do you know? And I looked at him and I said, because Jesus Christ, that's how I know. Because we're told that Jesus was punished for your sins. All of them. Because Jesus was punished for them that you are not being punished now. The prophet Isaiah puts it so clearly. In Isaiah 53, his words start, Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. I know God is not punishing you because he's already punished his son. And he said, so you're telling me there's no consequence for what we did. And I said to him, that's a different subject. There are consequences in this world for our sin. There are things that we endure and we receive punishment for, and Paul tells us that anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. When you transgress the law, the authority placed over you, you're punished, but not for getting away with it years ago. When you, as a child, decide to take money out of your parents' wallet without their knowing about it, and then you're caught and you're grounded, or whatever happens, it's not because you got away with it, it's because of what you did. There are consequences for the sin in this world. And God has put authority over us to protect us, to keep us from rebelling against that authority for our own good and for the good of others. And he will allow us to be punished and to feel the consequences of those sins here in this world. But he is not punishing you for past sins. It is you that have brought this punishment upon yourself. It is because we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world that we can transgress these laws, that there is disease, there is death. It is not God's punishment because he has punished his son. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting the people's sins against them. And John says it even more clearly. He is atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Let me ask you this question. If God punished Jesus for all sins, all time, what is left to punish? If he has punished all sin that has ever been committed, will be committed, what is left to punish? The only thing left to be judged is unbelief. And that on the last day. We live under the good news of Jesus Christ. God has sent his son into the world to live that perfect life and to die on a cross carrying all sin of all time. All sin, all time, was placed upon the back of Jesus Christ on the cross. He punished sin that day, your sin that day. What is left to punish? The good news is that we live under a state of grace, not karma. Karma says you get what you deserve. Grace says you get what you don't deserve. That you are more sinful than you could ever dare admit, but you are more loved than you could dare imagine. That is the gospel. That is the good news. 
And it's because of that good news. It's because of the testimony of Jesus that we can approach God with confidence, knowing that he loves us. We can pray to him in the midst of our pain, knowing that he's working for the good. We can know that. But we have to be reminded that there's constantly this voice that works against that gospel. All, every other religion, every other non-religious view says something different. And so we must constantly be reminded of the truth that we see in Jesus Christ. That we can go to God with our suffering. We can trust him with everything. Last week I introduced to you a friend of mine, Scott Thomas, that some of you know who passed away seven years ago after a struggle with lung cancer. And during that struggle, Scott was honest about his emotions, and he shared those with us in that blog that he shared. But there were some things that Scott left unsaid in that blog. There are some things that he left unsaid and, and did not say out loud in the blog, but confessed to others. But I know there's nothing he left unsaid to his Heavenly Father. But he shares these words to encourage us, and I hope they encourage us today. He says, we live in a world of if-then scenarios. We count on certain things happening if we do certain things first. For example, if you plant the crop, it will grow. If you eat well and exercise, you will be fit and strong. Oh, my personal favorite from the very best movie ever made, if you build it, they will come. Most of the if-then scenarios in our lives seem to indicate if we first do the right thing, then the right thing will happen to us. But if that's true, then it becomes impossible for me to handle the situation that I'm in. See, there is no if that I can think of that caused me to get the then of cancer. This is not self-inflicted. So if I did nothing to get this, then it would seem logically there is no if I can do to get rid of it. Where is my if then that says if I do this, then cancer will leave? There isn't any, at least not that I can see clearly. For the worldly religious, a common if-then approach to life circumstances might be if you first please God, do all that he expects, follow all the rules, then you can trust in his promises for your life. Isn't that a fairly widespread misunderstanding of man's relationship with God? It's as if God is just out there somewhere demanding to be appeased and then, at his discretion, blessing some with a good harvest or good health or a game of catch with his passed away father. The standard religious if-then approach seems to be, if you please God, he will bless you. And it carries a less uttered but often very ominous reflection of if you don't please God. He will punish you. Of course, the problem with this scenario is that you can never know if you've pleased God enough, right? Then the illogic of Romans 5 comes along. It says, basically, if God loves you, then he'll provide for you in everything. If God loves you, then there is no need for you to worry in anything. If God loves you, then there is reason to rejoice in all these things. Can you see in the inspired words of the Apostle Paul the only if that concerns this life is the one that asks if God loves you? And that, my friends, is a done deal. God does love each of us and prove that through the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus. Through that sacrifice, he has reconciled us all without exception through faith to Jesus, the Messiah. 
If Jesus is the Messiah, then we leave no reason, we have no reason to fear any temporary circumstances of our lives. In fact, if Jesus is the Messiah, then we can rejoice and find true peace and joy in those circumstances. The empty tomb testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And because he was raised to new life, we know that we will be raised to new life. And if he is the Messiah, then Jesus was his sacrifice. It's the cross that testifies to Jesus being the Messiah, uh, the tomb, but it's the cross that testifies to the fact that Jesus was punished for all sin, for all time, for all people. And we live in a state of grace provided by Jesus Christ. God did not punish my friend by taking the life of his child. God did not give my friend cancer. God did not cause those things to happen. We know that it's because we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world and that there is evil in the world. But it is not of God's doing. But he is at work. He is at work reconciling the world into himself. And so in the midst of pain, do not take on and suffer the lie that God is punishing you. God has already punished his son for that. In the midst of your pain, cast all of your cares, your anxieties, your concerns, your hurts upon Jesus. Cast them upon the Lord. What are you going to say that will surprise him? He can handle it. And he wants you to cast them upon him because he cares for you. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you and are amazed by you. And we say thank you, and yet at the same time, those words, that word seems so inadequate to express how we feel, how we try to comprehend what you've done. Because when we think about our own lives, when we think about our past, when we think about the mistakes we've made, the people we've hurt, there's that voice that tries to tell us that it's impossible for that to be taken away. It's impossible for that not to be punished. And your word tells us that's true. And that's why you punished your son. And instead of punishing us, you punished him. And that just is amazing. There's no other word. Father, you know what's on our hearts. You know what's in our head. You know the voices we listen to. You know the lies that we live under. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess openly in this silence our confusion, sometimes our hurts, our pains, our anger, our disappointments. We come before you trusting that you hear us and knowing that you do not reject us. 
And this meal that you have prepared before us is a reminder that at the very same time we stand forgiven because of what Jesus has done. That we live in this state of grace because of the love that you have for us. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that we have in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.